All right. Are we ready? Ready as I'll ever be. Yep, I'll be. Cool. Well, welcome back to another episode of Spam, 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 Humbug. This is episode 39. And before we begin, as always, I'd like to offer a hearty thank you to our co-producers, the people who support us via Patreon. So that's Seth, Johnny, Dominic, bumping the table here, Chris, Violation, Adam, Eric, Thorwan, Cody, Pascal, and Neil. Thank you all so very much. And actually, speaking of Patreon, we have a new patron this week. Uh, We welcome Oceana. So that's cool. Welcome aboard. Hope you like what you're hearing. And actually, I have a shout out tonight, too. Um, That would be the anonymous person or persons behind the at Ultima Dragons Twitter account. It's a relatively new Twitter account. It appeared just within the last few days. And... Yeah, that was kind of cool to see come along. It seems to have already uh, built up a a decent little following and does some pretty good engagement, actually, with dragons that are known to be on Twitter. So, cool stuff. They even located the founder of the Ultima Dragons, if you can believe that. He's now uh, like some kind of financial consultant. All right, and we... uh we are also welcoming uh, a bunch of new followers this week. Let's see. So on Podbean, we welcome uh, Royal Sexy, who I know for a fact is from the Shroud of the Avatar community. We've got the Bodester, S. Welch 3, She Smarts, Gaming News for You, Doe Clapton, there we go, I'm Mustapa, Epifreak, Maddie20, Gamer, and... Uh, Nawful Cyrus. There we go. My goodness. How do people come up with usernames like these? Is there, uh... Sometimes sometimes I wonder whether they just uh, subscribe to the podcast just to hear you attempt to pronounce them. <laughs> uh, uh, and for the Ultima Dragons on Facebook, we welcome Sagoon, Arnulf, Paolo, Brett, and Mike Nistel. Yes, the, uh, the inspiration for Nistel of Ultima 6 and Ultima 7 and Ultima Underworld 2 fame. So, yes. All right. Well, so who's all on board tonight? Well, as it happens, you've got three of us. You've got myself uh, with Stan the Fury Dragon. I am the co-founder and editor of the Ultima Codex, and I was at Ultima Aera before that. And I do a few other things around the internet, but that's probably what most people tuning in know me for. Um we're also joined tonight by Boolean Dragon. Why don't you tell us yourself a little bit, or why don't you tell us, there we go, a little bit about yourself, Boolean. <laughs> hey, everybody. Uh, good to be back here again. Uh, Boolean Dragon, otherwise known as Kevin Fishburn. Um, I run 8virtues.com. I'm also the developer behind uh, Sanctimonia and Sylph. Um, you can reach me on Twitter at 8virtues. And uh, I recently actually started a, an IceCast uh, radio station, um, which you can see at uh, facebook.com slash 8V radio. Um, if you like classic original soundtrack chiptunes like a Nintendo Commodore 64, 
TurboGrafx-16, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, uh, stuff like that. Uh, check it out. Cool, yeah. Um, you'll have to remind me of that link. We'll include it in the show notes. Will do. And we are also joined tonight by Linguistic Dragon. Hello, hello. Linguistic Dragon here. I am the author of the Ultimate Journeys blog, basically a chronicle of uh, of my thoughts as I play my way through the Ultima series, uh, the portion of which I have not seen through to completion before, so it's been a good time. I'm currently making my way through Savage Empire. Um, also a couple other blatherings on other various Ultima-related topics, including a... Uh, Phonological analysis of Gorgish. So, uh, had a good time with that. So, check it out if uh, if language is of interest to you. Nice. All right. I thought, so, I thought you were going to say pharmacological. I think uh, that might have been uh, better. <laughs> well, you know, silver serpent venom. It was kind of a thing on the uh, the Gargish side of the world. And yeah, it was. I think uh, ultimately, what, eight had, like, mushrooms all over the place that would kill you? So, close enough. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> all right, so we're not talking about pharmacology tonight. What are, well, I mean, we're talking about something that often gets tied up with pharmacology uh, in its more advanced <laughs> stages. We're talking about aging. <laughs> yes, we're talking about aging, specifically uh the aging gamer because you know the days are really gone when we could just all play games at whim for what duration pleased us and you know now we're we're facing the the interesting uh challenge of having grown up as gamers and really being you know um one of the first generations to do so and now we have to deal with getting older and we have to deal with having less time for our favorite pastime and we have to deal with changes in that pastime and changes in the gaming industry and well you know what we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff so but yeah let's face it first off we're all getting older well some of us are at any rate i mean i still find that i'm the baby of the group when in mixed adult company um all the other beaver scout leaders for example uh, are at least five years older than me, if not in their 40s. And even among the dragons, I seem to be on the younger end of things. So... Hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, you might actually be the, the baby of the group here. I'm I'm pretty sure I am. But, uh, but just even like if I'm hanging out with, you know, just other parents, I mean, you know, there's like all the, all the moms at, my daughter's school who have kids in her class at her age level. Um, they're older than me and it's just like, wow. Um, anyways. <sighs> and you know, it would be nice to still be living in the days when we, uh, when we didn't have families or jobs or bills or, you know, other concerns consuming <laughs> our times and energy. But I think for most of us, at any rate, those days are, are, are well and truly in the past. Even if, uh, you know, I mean, not all of us here are our parents. Uh, I know Kevin is and, and I am, but I'm pretty sure linguistic that you are not. Nope, I'm not. Um, so, but you know, you do have a day job. We all got bills to pay. Um, 
Stuff gets in the way, definitely. And I mean, certainly a recurring theme on the Ultimate Journeys blog has been just like, oh my gosh, I haven't found time. It's been so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. I've kind of lost track of how many posts I've started out that way. It's, it's yeah. Anyways, uh, it has been a thing. But, you know, while we all, I think, feel the impact of that transition from, you know, having gone from our youthfulness to not as youthful, um, one thing that we kind of all share in common is that, again, the time we have uh, to devote to gaming has really been on the the downslope. Oh, hello. Okay. Anyways, um, I know I've been feeling the effects a lot in recent years. I mean, uh, even during university, because obviously university is what it is, um, got married, had kids, moved to a new house that was farther from my work and made for a longer commute. And, you know, I mean, these all kind of chip away at, at the, the, the free time a little bit. Um, but what was interesting actually is that for the most part, I was actually usually able to adapt in each case. So there was always some time to, you know, play a game. Um, the longer commute that I mentioned there, for example, meant sitting for an hour each way on a bus, which very quickly turned into an opportunity to work on codex content, uh, which freed up the evening. So if I wanted to play a computer game, I could play a computer game. And then I switched jobs. And the bus commute was replaced by a car commute. And then, you know, more than any, that I think actually has had the biggest single impact on uh, the amount of time I have to actually sit down and play games anymore. Um, Because it meant that, you know, the codex work uh, had to get pushed into the evenings, uh, which, you know, previously would have been a little bit more free and clear. So, I mean, that's just me. Uh, my my story, if anybody else wants to sound off on, you know, sort of the transitions they've been through, by all means, go ahead. Yeah, I would, I would just like to, to say that, you know, I've had a similar experience, um, I think, to you. However, it goes, it goes a little bit deeper than that because basically what I experienced in my youth with, I guess it would be what a second generation console would be in television and, you know, third generation would be the Nintendo Entertainment System get mixed up on that sometimes, but, you know, the feeling when I would get a new console in the early days was just of utter magic. Like you were seeing things that you had never seen before that beyond that you hadn't even, you know, dreamt in your wildest imagination because you had really no frame of reference could exist Uh, because with with each successive console um, and the games for them, you know, the bar, the bar was raised so high uh, by significant differences in hardware, the game games back then were basically defined by how good the hardware was. Uh, they were constantly thinking about the hardware, like what can we physically do with this? Not not what do we want to do, but what can we do? Whereas now it's more defined by what we want to do. Hardware is much less of a consideration. You know, motherboards these days pretty much max out at 64 gigabytes of RAM. So you know, compare that to the. Yeah, you know, oh, the Commodore 64. You know, it's not 64 gigabytes. That's uh, that's 64 kilobytes. Um, so you know, when a new console would come out, it was just absolutely magical. You were blown away. Um, and now, for me, now that it could be considered a blessing that perhaps people don't have to consider the hardware as much, but I think the games, to a large degree, have lost a lot of that magic. 
Like if you compare games for the PlayStation, you know, three to the PlayStation four, it's like, uh, so it went from being 1080i to 1080p now. It's like, who cares? They look almost exactly the same outside of being able to pack in a few more shaders. So for me, it's not just a time management issue. I think a lot of that, that magical feeling that you got in the beginning, you know, nothing's quite like your first experience. Um, it's hard to get that back. So I think that's a big part of it. True, true. I mean, definitely the, uh, trying to think of the word here, um, the, the <laughs> style or the, uh, the experience of games has changed somewhat. Um, I mean, I'm probably not quite as nostalgic as you, Kevin, despite my continuing professed love of Ultima 6. Um, I have found that my tastes have kind of evolved as, as I've gotten older. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, um, well, I mean, a lot of it just comes down to time, right? I, you know, it's, uh, and I think we're going to discuss this, uh, a little bit later on, but, well, you know what? I mean, maybe before I launch into that point, Jordan, did you have something to say to the first bit? <laughs> <laughs> Not a whole lot, actually. Um, most of it is echoing what you two have already said. I mean, I definitely noticed a slight change in my approach to the games I play um, nowadays as opposed to um, how I used to because nowadays it's, it's more a means of me to unwind. And so it's a lot easier for me to dive into what is already familiar rather than take the effort and, and uh, mental processing it takes in order to learn a new, wrap my brain around the mechanics and uh, methods of a new game. It's just a lot easier for me to return to something I know and know well, which is part of the reason why I play Ultima 4 so much. But <laughs> Yeah, totally. Um, all right, so the point I was kind of launching into there was that, and I'll probably stoke some controversy for this, but uh, whatever. Oh, goody. Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, I do have some residual nostalgia, obviously. I play Ultima 6 not, you know, infrequently. Um, but I have found that uh, my taste in games has evolved, actually, in in some respects, even in alarming directions. And I'll get into what I mean in a moment. But uh, just, you know, I mean, as a result, like, there was a time when, yeah, like, I loved the idea of games that were, uh, you know, the plot was a hundred hours long and you could just lose yourself in it for an indefinite length of time and the world rewarded exploration. And to be fair, it's not that I don't like those kinds of games anymore, but I also don't have time to really pursue them. They require them. a significantly larger investment too. Yeah. And I mean, again, my, my, uh, well-worn example of reckoning is actually worth citing here again, because I mean, you know, I put 110 hours into passing the narrative of that game with various side quests and, you know, all the house quests and things like that. But that was, that game came out in what, 2011 and I finished it in, uh, 2014 roughly. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, I, I love it, but it, it's, you know, Whereas with Ultima 6, you know, I mean, Ultima 6, you can lose yourself in for, yeah, just hours and days on end. 
or I could pass it in 90 to 100 minutes if I really feel like it. So I don't think I can pass Reckoning uh, quite that quickly. <laughs> but if, it um, is the, if you can't put it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, totally. That would be... That would be that would be something epic uh, if I could actually do that, but I don't think I could. But you know, I mean, as wonderful as it is to find a game that'll tell you an engaging story that spans you know a hundred hours or more, I mean, considering some of the time management issues that we've kind of already touched on, sometimes it's nice when a game only wants twenty hours of your time. Uh, sometimes it's nice when a game's a little bit more linear because then you can just you know, pursue the plot, pursue the story. And yeah, you don't necessarily get to lose yourself in the surroundings, but on the other hand, you might actually finish the story. So, um, right off. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, I and think as you get older, the, one of the first things you learn is that the process of, of aging is, is basically, uh, you know, a succession of compromises. Yeah, there's you can't just do whatever you want to do anymore. You know, you, you have responsibilities to yourself, and you know if you have a family to to other people, so you do the best you can. You know, to not just completely give up all of the things and the hobbies and you know all of your dreams and all of the little fun things that you might do, but just continually compromising. Exactly. <sighs> you know, though, um, the other I think. The other, the other part of this is that, you know, cause this is kind of, we're, we're talking a bit about how games have changed and, you know, like Kevin, you mentioned, uh, some of the changes that we've seen in, you know, how games are designed. And, uh, I mean, you know, I, I've observed it too. There's been some interesting trends afoot in the industry overall, I think. I mean, for a while, there was sort of this overall, I guess, broadening of the industry. Um, games really became things that were meant to have much more widespread appeal. Uh, and the gaming industry as a whole, you know, I mean, now they pull in earnings that dwarf the music and film industries combined. And at least for a time, you know, it definitely seemed that games were kind of being eh, simplified and streamlined to uh, to appeal to that broader audience, which some saw coming at the expense of the enjoyment of, you know, the, the hardcore gamers. But then even more recently, there's been sort of this uh, renaissance on the indie side, and we've seen several games, RPGs especially, uh, announced and even published over the last few years that have really tried to um, appeal to those looking for that older school core gaming experience. Um, and then, you know, and we've also mentioned this, I think, in other podcasts, but uh, we've also seen, you know, features that we knew and loved from the games of yesterdecade coming back into modern games. You know, open world is a huge buzzword these days. For example, uh, Grand Theft Auto has gone open world. Obviously, the Elder Scrolls game is well known for it. Um, <laughs> I think Watch Dogs, if I'm not mistaken, um, the new Zelda game that's coming out, uh, The Witcher 3, you know, it's like, hey, great open world. Great, great feature. Not a new feature, great feature. But uh, I I'm still, you know, I still like my joke, you know, I'm waiting for GTA six and, you know, uh, people to realize, Oh, Hey, like you can totally, uh, take over this bakery and start baking and selling bread to people. <laughs> Wait, haven't we seen that before? No, it is a new feature that has never been done before. 
he said, voice thick and dripping with sarcasm. So that's so, probably yeah, how Kotaku will report it. Yeah, I've said a few times, actually, that Ultima was the original Grand Theft Auto, where they would let you rob people and run away from the guards. It's like the same thing that blew people away with, you know, uh, Grand Theft Auto 3, when they when they went to 3D, is, oh, I can just raise unholy hell and get some, some sort of reasonable response with everyone trying to catch me and, you know, become Grand a new game itself. <laughs> that, that kind of has a nice ring to it. <laughs> <sighs> What's another thing that's changed? Um, I don't know. Do I want to stay on that topic for? Oh, great! I'm gonna to have to cut this whole little rambling oh, out. Um, I'd like to add, add one thing to that. Is um, sure. You were, you know, you were talking about how you know I call it the maturation, you know, of the of the industry that wants a certain amount of money, wants investors. You know, in the infamous suits, once they realized the potential of the medium after you know the hard work, the artistic work had been done by countless studios before, where they were just trying to make a good game and obviously make as much money as possible as well, but they weren't the best equipped to do that because they generally were not suits. Well, once they figured it out, once they figured out a way to maximize um, their return on investment uh, in the process of making a game, they're like the games became easier. Uh, you didn't even, you know, you didn't have to worry about, oh, I can only save here. If I die, I go all the way back, or I have limited lives, or not only do I have yeah. limited lives, I don't even have continues. You know, games used to be brutal. They realized that wasn't the best way to make as much money as possible. And that was that was reflected in the game mechanics and the design of games that were, that received heavy investment by people that had no interest in the game other than how much money they could make on that, so the games have changed in that respect. And that while yeah, they're still an artistic expression, they're still made by passionate individuals. Ultimately, they serve the purpose of earning as much revenue as possible with as little investment as possible in order to satisfy uh, the shareholders of large corporations. I suppose, but at the same time, um, and at the risk of stoking even further controversy, I actually like that the mechanics have been uh, significantly simplified. I, I like the fact that, you know, I don't just have three lives to finish a Mario game anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm because, not necessarily you know saying that it's a bad thing, but it exists to serve something that exists outside of the game itself, and that is making as much money as possible. Yeah, but I mean... You're not wrong. I mean, obviously, yes, it, companies do want to make money uh, and as much as they can off the games they develop. But at the same time, that hasn't been unbeneficial to the consumers of the games because what it's done is basically, you know, um, yes, in some cases simplify and in some cases streamline and in some cases just soften um, the game mechanics to – make the game accessible to a larger base of players. And I mean, we can bemoan the fact that, you know, yeah, there really isn't a hardcore mode in too many games anymore. Um, but on the other hand, it's kind of cool that, you know, I think at any rate, that it's kind of cool that, you know, it used to be a niche thing, you know, like it used to be a big deal when a computer game sold a hundred thousand copies. That was like, the bomb, right? But that's niche, right? Like that's so niche. 
I mean, even even back in the day when Ultima Four was selling a hundred thousand copies, what was the population of the U.S.? You know, <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, and now the world you have seven billion people. You yeah. know, a hundred hundred thousand isn't that many. <laughs> no, right? Bucket. And I, I mean, not. you know, now you have you know like, and I mean, you know, to be fair, against seven billion people, ten million is also a drop in the bucket, or twelve million, I think, total copies that Skyrim has now shipped. But, but it's still, a considerably like, larger drop in the bucket, right? Like it's it's a there's a definite broadening there. And that's a good thing to my mind. I mean, because to, you know, the way I look at it is, and again, going back to that comment, gaming is huge. It's bigger than music and film and possibly even TV all together as one. And what are film and music and television? Well, they were in decades past the preeminent modes of cultural expression. And not that movies are not still a significant mode of cultural expression, not that music is not still a significant mode of cultural expression, but gaming is even bigger than that. And so it's really cool that gaming has uh, has become that and that so many people now are really just diving headlong into this form of cultural expression, not always for the best, you know, I mean, I'll happily harp on that Kim Kardashian game until (laughs) I'm blue in the face, but it's a thing, you know, like it's been a, it's been a profound shift in culture. And I think, I almost think that we haven't yet taken full advantage of it. I think we're still on the way there because, you know, when you sit down to listen to a song, where you sit down to watch a movie or TV show, you're, it's purely consumptive, right? You know, someone else has come up with the plot and filmed it and put all the effects in place and whatever else, or someone else has written the lyrics and written the music and sung it. And you taking that in might glean some meaning from it, but you have no real contribution to it. You know, you're, it's purely consumptive. And I mean, not that the average gamer has any real input into how a game is overall designed and set up, but certainly there is more of a sense of, you know, the player not just simply consuming this, but actively um, taking on some role within it, you know, taking on um, some measure of control over how this mode of cultural expression is experienced um, and interacted with. You know, it's not just purely consumptive anymore. Yeah, it's certainly one of the unique features or semi-unique features of the medium. Um, But I actually agree with you as far as, you know, it being a a net positive that more people are playing games now. Um, And also, I actually think for the most part, it's good that games have essentially been nerfed to make them more accessible to more people, obviously, again, with a profit motive in mind, um, you know, because there was no reason for games to be that hard. It's like a, if a game is hard, it should be because it's an actual challenge, not because they just put some weird thing, like some completely abstract thing, like you have this many lives, and then you go all the way back to the beginning because we're extreme assholes, and this is the best way we can possibly come up with to keep you playing the game. 
Um, but the problem with the whole return on investment model that's now used in games that receive a lot of funding, um, you know, your typical triple A game, is that with each with each feature that the artists making the game, the creative visionaries that actually just want to make something cool and somehow still keep their job, um, the sacrifices that are actually made are when the return is not big enough uh, with respect to the investment. And an example of some things that suffer from that, that as you know, old school gamers that have seen everything under the sun is you get features like a day-night cycle dropped from the game because, well, yeah, they're cool, but they'll only cause us to sell a few more copies, and yet it requires this huge investment, you know, in our studio to implement this feature. You know, so NPC schedules, things like that, baking bread, while they're cool from a gaming standpoint and from an artistic standpoint, if you're a game developer, uh, they fall along the wayside because they do not provide a sufficient return on the investment. So when things like that are lost, I think that's what creates the sort of backlash that we're seeing now in the indie game scene, where people are more focused on art than profit. And they just want to make a good game, and they sort of put the whole ROI thing on the back burner, still obviously trying to remain employed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, even the indie guys want to make uh, a little bit of coin. <laughs> Keeps the doors open. <laughs> but I, I think you are right. I mean, I think – but, you know, and again, this is a point that a few people have made. I think Richard Garriott has made it in a couple of different uh, forums. And uh, I know just like it's come up in discussions I've had with other developers, not all of which are on, on the record or online. Um, but – Richard Garriott, I think, has probably put it the most eloquently when he's, you know, observed that whenever there's a leap forward in gaming tech, there's kind of this leap backward in terms of the number of features that are packed into games. Uh, and I mean, I think with 3D especially – we're still feeling the effects of that. Uh, I, I think that having, and I guess, you know, I mean, if I think about it, you know, like if you look at well, like when was a Calibeth, right? Like that was the late seventies, uh, Ultima one. Yeah. Ultima one, early eighties. Mm -hmm. Ultima seven was 92. 92, I believe. Yeah. It was 91, 92. So, I mean, you're coming um, a pretty significant distance there you know, around 15 years to go from a very simple line and ASCII art uh, hack and slash dungeon crawler that was like, you know, I mean, essentially just random monster slaying to a fully interactive open world like that took time. That took a fair amount of time. And 3D has been around a little bit longer than that, obviously. Uh, like this is a point I've made before too. And it, <laughs> 3D could have gone in a different direction had Ultima 9 been a runaway success, I think. It wasn't. And so 3D went in the direction that it did, which is a little bit more unfortunate, right? Because, And this is something I talked about with Bill Randolph, is that, you know, with Ultima 9, 
with that 3D engine, they tried. They tried hard to bake in as much of this interaction as they possibly could. Um, you know, they had to take out NPC schedules because of pathfinding, but they tried to include as many of these, you know, features that we would think of as being, well, Ultima-ish, if nothing else, uh, for lack of any better term. They tried. And they put a lot of them in, and they had to take some of them out um, for, you know, performance and bugginess reasons. But still, I mean, if you look at what is there in Ultima 9, you don't see that again as part of a mainline game. I mean, I, some of that stuff would have been possible with like the modding tools available to um, Morrowind or Oblivion, but they weren't included in the base game. Even Skyrim is only just starting to get back to that. The Witcher 3 probably has more of that in it, right? More of those features. They're really only just starting to come back now, even though we've had 3D uh, RPGs for, well, yeah, a little bit more than 15 years now, really. So I guess in some senses, uh, assuming that Richard Garriott's hypothesis is in some respects correct. We have a little longer to wait before that stuff comes back, but it probably will come back. It's just the challenge of, and again, this is something Bill talked about, is just the challenge of doing something that's easy in 2D in 3D that that can be a bigger deal, right? You know, even something as simple as like it's it's nothing for you know to to break a chest open in Ultima Six, right? I mean, very simple. You just you hit the chest has a certain amount of hit points, and you hit it with a sword, and then eventually the chest just disappears, and you can accept that, right? Well, what do they do in Ultima Nine? I can walk up to this barrel and I can smash the barrel. And all of a sudden, this one 3D object is now three Several. 3D objects that the engine needs to independently track. Um, so, I mean, you know, even something like that, breaking a barrel and having the debris of the barrel persist in the game world, you don't see that in 3D. You know, if I'm running around in Reckoning, I can smash all the crates and barrels I want. And I see, you know, wood and chips and everything fly but then ultimately it all just disappears, right? So, but even even that, right? I mean, you think about how simple it is to break open a chest in Ultima 6, or I think you can do it in Ultima 7 too. It's no big deal, right? It's just, you, at most, you swap one tile graphic for another. Even in the Reckoning case, you have to destruct a 3D object. You have animations. You have... Um, you know, and I mean, <laughs> sometimes if I do it just right and it's a huge pile of crates and barrels, like I could destroy 20 of the things at once with the right chakram shot. And so that's a huge amount of now I have animated elements on the screen. I'll see, a, I, I sometimes would see a performance hit, right? Um, and if you want to do it, and that's, and that's even just to do it in a way that ultimately still results in the chest or barrel or whatever I'm destroying disappearing. If I want to do it the Ultima 9 way, the the really cool way where that wreckage persists, 
my gosh, like we're not even, I don't, (laughs) we're maybe only now just at the point where we have engines and graphics cards advanced enough to really do that well. So, yeah, yeah, I think if you take a look at the, you know, the gameplay features that we have today in the average game versus, you know, 20 plus years ago, you know, that, that disparity that you're mentioning, humans are extremely visually oriented creatures. So, you know, the glimmer in everyone's eye when they first saw a, a polygon being effectively rendered versus sprites, I, you know, in many ways, it probably did set the industry back uh, mechanics-wise and gameplay-wise, you know, 20 to 25 years. So ho- hopefully things are catching back up to the point where, where they can go back and have the functionality of Ultima 6 and Ultima 7 and in many ways even Ultima 5 in a modern game. You know, again, with without the powers to be saying it's not worth the investment, no one really cares that much. Let's just keep leaving it out. Yeah. Or, well, I mean, yeah, that's definitely part of the calculus because um, it might, yeah, th- we're like, take open world, right? I mean, we had it for the longest time and then it went away. Why did it go away? Well, because it's a lot more challenging to do and do well in 3D. You know, Bethesda kept attempting it with Morrowind and then Oblivion, but even they had stumbling blocks, right? Like with Morrowind, the world was entirely handcrafted. It was a little on the small side and there were performance issues. With Oblivion, they went with more procedural generation and people hated them for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, it let them generate more of a world. With Skyrim, they went, I believe, with sort of a hybridized approach where they did sort of this initial um, procedural generation pass. And then they had their artists go in and do all sorts of touch-ups here and there, which in some ways is the best of both worlds. And in other ways, I mean, you know, you can see like, how much additional work would be required to really do that because it's difficult in 3d it is or it's more difficult than in 2d um especially if you're making the jump from like tile graphics to highly detailed 3d objects like there's there's definitely more effort required and it's the same for things like npc schedules and it's the same for things like object interactivity um All of these things are more computationally expensive. They're more time intensive to implement and implement well and bug test and all the rest. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, you can kind of see why developers haven't until now started really pursuing these features again because um, the engine tech if it has allowed for it, hasn't allowed for it to be done particularly easily. So, you know, we're really only getting back to the point where now we have engines and systems that are performant enough for that. Um, And so you're starting to see more developers take the chance on these features. And that's a trend that'll probably continue. But, you know, you're right. I mean, there is an ROI calculation that happens in the background there. And it's unfortunate that it does. But on the other hand, we 
do see games getting made, which is a good thing, versus games getting half made and then canceled because some bean counter says, I don't see how this is going to turn a profit. So, yeah, EverQuest Next uh, recently got the axe. Yes. Probably, just, oh, just, my ass. They said it wasn't fun. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what really happened? But, you know, speaking of trends uh, in the games industry, almost from day one, has actually been extremely trend-driven, especially when it comes to people trying to inject money into studios or, uh, you know, to try to make even more money. Uh, you know, like how many games, like, aren't, you could argue, Ultima or Final Fantasy clones, you know, or Street Fighter uh, 2 clones, uh, or do- <laughs> Doom clones, you know, you could argue Call of Duty is a, a Doom clone. Uh, yeah, sure. For a while, the industry thought there was absolutely no money uh, left at all. Um, in games like Ultima, until we had Bethesda, you know, pumping pumping out some great games. Um, well, that's arguable, but interesting games. Um, and then, right. Sure. And then the and well, I like the I like the third one. I I did play Skyrim a little, but anyway, um, you know, in the whole space simulation genre was no one has any interest in that, you know, until Chris Robertson Star Citizen comes along and. Oh, how you know? How did all the suits miss that one? That apparently everyone in the free world actually wanted, you know, another <laughs> another commander game. So they follow trends. They say, oh, this studio uh, got lucky or whatever, had the right people there at the right time, and they produced a smash success. Everyone jumps on that bandwagon, and it creates a genre. Everyone's cloning that game. So that's something yep. else to consider about the games industry is it's, it's extremely trend driven. So it's not necessarily what would be successful. It's what people would perceive investors would perceive as being successful based on a game like doom or street fighter two. Oh yeah. And I mean, but that happens at all levels, right? Like <sighs> that happens in the browser based sphere. You know, I mean, how many Ebony clones are there? Right. Uh, that Angry happens. Birds. Yeah. That happens in mobile. How many angry birds like games or like, I mean, flappy bird, flappy bird was all the thing for a while. And how many flappy bird clones were there? And even then flappy bird itself, its mechanics were really just a clone of jetpack joyride. So, um, more or less, uh, you know, tap the screen to go up, let go of the screen to go down. Hello, you're playing jetpack joyride. Um, Clash of Clans is another one. You know, there's all sorts of games now that are built on the Clash of Clans model. Um, so yeah, I mean, you do you do see this a lot, and at every level of the gaming industry. And I guess, in, I mean, in a lot of ways, it does suck. But then, in a lot of ways, it's also not something that's particularly new, right? Like, I mean, you had Mario. Sonic was an interesting spin on it but it was you know still fundamentally it always struck me as being sega's answer to mario um yeah i liked nec's answer with a bonk's adventure where you would actually climb walls with your teeth and kill people with your forehead (laughs) (laughs) yeah or and then of course like i remember donkey kong uh i think it was 64 Maybe it was SNS. Jeez. I'd have to go back and look for it, which was basically just now, you know, cribbing a lot of Sonic mechanics. So, eh, right? Just back and forth. Um, but, you know, actually, that reminds me of something, too. Uh, <laughs> and I was actually kind of, it was nice that the Bioware guys were this frank, but, you know, this was something they were communicating to the Beaver Scouts when we were doing the board game design. I just ordered those, by the way. So when they get here, I'll have to 
show you how they turned out. Yes, yes, you will. But uh, one of the points that uh, one of them made was that, you know, and I mean, he was telling the kids this, he's just like, you know, look, when we design a game, I mean, yeah, sure. Sometimes you come up with a brand new thing and it's the coolest thing ever and it's great. But most of the time, that's not the best way to go about it. Most of the time, we'll play other games and we'll keep notes about things we like in those other games. And then when we're making our game and we need to do this, that, or the other thing, you know, we go back to the notes and be just like, oh, hey, they did it this way in this game. Well, let's start with that and let's kind of just adapt it to our needs. You know, um, and I mean, in a lot of ways, I can't really find fault with that because wheels and reinvention, right? I mean, it's... <laughs> I was just about to say that. Yeah, it's... A lot of the time... And I mean, you know, I could tie this back to Ultima a little bit by, you know, talking about Origins Penchant to roll a new engine every time they wanted to roll a new numbered Ultima game. I guess, sure, if that's your philosophy, but at some point... Even for Origin, it became untenable. And really, if you've locked into a good thing, or if you've, you know, got now some really good stuff uh, in place, why would you go through the pain of re-architecting all of that from scratch? Like, that just well, that doesn't make sense. Right. Fundamentally, it stifles innovation. And it was easier to get away with that back in the day when you had 512k of RAM to play with. Uh, but with the complexity of engines these days and the things that gamers expect from a game, you know, visually and gameplay-wise, it actually, is, as much sense as it made back, back in the day, it no longer makes sense because there's too much infrastructure that well, has to be yeah, sure, created in terms of like art. Sure, in terms of like the, the art, but what about in terms of systems design? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, if I'm making a shooter, I mean, I can certainly do an innovative twist on a well-known mechanic. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But am I going to have the time to develop and implement something, you know, completely new that I just came up with from scratch off the top of my head, especially with all that we've seen now in the shooter market, right? Like, is it not that, you know, genuine new innovations can't happen? I'm not saying that, but I am saying that at some point, you know, people are going to, uh, I, I'm saying, I guess that it's, it's not something that, you know, you can bank on happening every time you want to roll a new game, right? So if There's instead, insufficient return on investment to create a new engine. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an ROI <laughs> that's, thing that's, too. That's, but. Not, that's not always the only thing though, because, because once you have a standard, people are going to start expecting that. And when you deviate too much from that, it's going to become impenetrable. I mean, I kind of actually bumped into this earlier this week because um, – because I've been playing a lot of a modern, uh, a more recent, you know, modern game that uses the standard WASD movement, and then I switched to a game that uses a completely different control scheme because it was developed before WASD became standard. Yeah. And for a moment, muscle memory is, you know, 
forcing me to go one way, and I'm going, why can't I move? Why can't I move? What's going Oh, right. Different game. Different coach goal scheme. Well, that was and like, so, I mean, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was pretty much just going to reiterate things, so go ahead. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of like the first time I played uh, Mass Effect, and the game I had played immediately before that was Ultima 9. And so, you know, <laughs> I, uh, and it's a very good thing that you can't friendly fire NPCs in Mass Effect because <laughs> literally the first thing that I would have done is put two rounds into the back of Joker's head. Because, you know, I'm just like, okay, yep, sure, time to control this game. And I do the Ultima 9 thing, click. Shepard pulls out her gun, bang, bang, two into the back of Joker's head. It's just like, oh, right. This probably has WASD controls. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, but, yeah. And I mean, like, even in that respect, interesting point to make there, because while in a lot of ways I do like that, say, something like control has been standardized, right? I like that WASD has kind of become a de facto standard for controlling movement. I do agree with Richard Garriott's point that um, it's not necessarily the best control scheme, especially if you want to have typed keyboard input in your game, uh-huh. which granted not right. everybody does anymore. But I can certainly appreciate the merits of an alternative control scheme that, say, um, keeps the player's fingers off the letter keys, right? Which Ultima 9 had. And it was a deliberate choice for Ultima 9 because they were going to have typed input. Not all the time, but there were different points in the game where you have to type something in. So they made the decision, well, crap, let's, you know, keep the player's movement controls off the letter keys. And... Um, Richard Garriott is, I, I hope he hasn't given up lobbying for that as a control mode in Shroud of the Avatar, but I doubt it's going to wind up being implemented even so, but I'd yeah, like to see it. There's nothing that says that you can't use the different control scheme. It's just that it's become so standardized. You have a sharper, a steeper learning curve if you do use an alternative control scheme yeah. than you might have previously because it's so ingrained into the average gamer's mind these days. Yeah, definitely. So that's something you have to be more conscious of when you're, when you're developing. Yep. And I mean, that's the other side of it too, right? Is that, you know, if you're developing a game, sure, you can be original in what arrays, in what ways your uh, team's talent and innovation allows for, but you have to, tread very carefully if you're going to step too far away from, you know, the established expectations of gamers. And not that it's necessarily a bad thing to do that, but it is something that has to be undertaken with a great deal of care because otherwise you're going to get Metacritic bombed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose on the flip side of that too, I mean, I mean, video games have been around long enough now that they're, that we do have from, you know, kind of tropes and cliches and that sort of thing. And Speaking as a writer, I've, I've said before that um, you know cliches are not necessarily a bad thing to use in and of themselves. It's just because they're so familiar, you've got to be careful when you're using them because people are going to notice more when you do them wrong. So on, on the flip side, having standards means people are going to scrutinize them closer too. It's, it's going to be more noticeable when you do something wrong in that respect. Yuppers. Well, we're going to have to pause here. Um, 
because we're coming up on the hour mark and that's really all I have time for tonight. <laughs> but we knew this was going to be a two or maybe even three, good gosh, part. So part episode. So for now, always remember, if you like spam, 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 humbug, please do leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean or wherever you listen to us. Uh, subscribing, subscribing is also good, but I'm pretty sure that's not a problem. And for, for most of you, um, there is the Ultima Codex Patreon as well. So if you like the Ultima Codex, I mean, the $1 pledge there gets you access to spam, 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 humbug episodes. And actually, if you're pledging to the Patreon because you like spam, 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 humbug that much, great, good. I'm so glad for you. Um, but I would encourage the use of the Patreon if you like the Ultima Codex, because that's what helps me maintain um, the hosting for it. That's, you know, I mean, with enough funding, I can even look at expanding the server infrastructure. And that impacts things like Shroud of the Avatar's IRC channels as well. So the other option is if you don't want to do the uh, recurring thing with Patreon, shop at GOG. Uh, The Codex is a GOG affiliate. So if you visit the Codex first and click on the GOG banner and then go about your business uh, buying the new and old games that you love and enjoy, um, that helps. The Codex gets a bit of commission on that. And you, the consumer, don't pay a cent more. On the community side, there's the Ultima Dragons group on Facebook. Um, there's also an Ultima Dragons community on Google+. Plus. Would totally encourage you to sign on with either of those. There will be links in the show notes. And now you can also follow at Ultima Dragons on Twitter and engage with the person or persons behind that who definitely, whoever they are, seem to have their finger quite handily on the pulse of Dragonhood, let's say. Um <laughs> They they were even uh, right there when Cinnabon was doing some sort of online thing. It was it was quite funny to see. <laughs> um, there is also an underused UDIC hashtag on Twitter, so also make use of that. Um, there's a Facebook page for the Ultima series. Please consider liking that. Ultima Codex is on uh, Twitter as well at Ultima Codex. And you know what? Whatever social network you favor, just please consider sharing any content posted to the Codex or to the Codex's social media profiles or to the Ultima Dragon's social media profiles um, with your own followers and friends. Spread the word. Spread the Ultima. Finally, if you would like to recommend anybody for a shout-out, drop an email, ultimacodex at gmail.com, which you can also use to suggest podcast topics, offer commentary or criticism. Or to volunteer your time if you would actually like to join us as a contributor in these podcast sessions. All right. So, Kevin, where can we find you online? I mean, you already mentioned the uh, the radio channel, but uh, where else do you hide? Uh, yeah, uh, just basically Twitter, 8 Virtues, uh, YouTube, Vos Corp Bet Mani, and uh, Facebook, 8 Virtues, also 8V Radio on Facebook. Radio and Linguistic. <laughs> Uh, you can find me at ultimajourneys.blogspot.com. I hang around the uh, Ultimate Dragons Facebook page on occasion. You can also find me on Twitter as Dragonkatea, K-E-T-E-A. And again, link in the show notes. And of course, myself, I'm on Twitter, WTF underscore Dragon. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I've got an About Me profile, About.me, a neat little service, kind of gives you a splash page about my IRL persona. And of course, I'm at the Ultima Codex, ultimacodex.com. Thank you again for listening. We're going to be revisiting this topic over the next, well, 
Certainly the next episode is also going to be about it, and who knows, we might actually need a third. But thank you (laughs) for now, for listening, and until next time, be virtuous. Be virtuous.